Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. This is the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. If you would like to support the podcast, hear everything first, and get to vote on what book I read next, please do join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash down to sleep. There is also a YouTube channel if you would like to listen to the YouTube version, and that is youtube.com slash down to sleep. But wherever you are listening, and however you are listening, I'm glad you're here. So let's tuck you in, take a nice deep breath, and let's get down to sleep. With the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Good night. When Mary Lennox was sent to Misselthwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true, too. She had a little thin face and a little thin body and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow and her face was yellow because she had been born in India and had always been ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position under the English government and had always been busy and ill himself. And her mother had been a great beauty who cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with gay people. She had not wanted a little girl at all. And when Mary was born, she handed her over to the care of Anaya, who was made to understand that if she wished to please the Mem Sahib, she must keep the child out of sight as much as possible. So when she was a sickly, fretful, ugly little baby, she was kept out of the way. And when she became a sickly, fretful, toddling thing, she was kept out of the way also. She never remembered seeing familiarly anything but the dark faces of her ayah and the other native servants. And as they always obeyed her, and gave her her own way in everything, because the Mem Sahib would be angry if she was disturbed by her crying, by the time she was six years old, she was as tyrannical and selfish a little pig as ever lived. The young English governess who came to teach her to read and write disliked her so much that she gave up her place in three months. And when the other governesses came to try to fill it, they always went away in a shorter time than the first one. So if Mary had not chosen to really want to know how to read books, she never would have learned her letters at all. One frightfully hot morning, when she was about nine years old, she awakened feeling very cross, and she became crosser still when she saw that the servant who stood by her bedside was not her ayah. Why did you come? she said to the strange woman. I will not let you stay. Send my ayah to me. The woman looked frightened, but she only stammered that the ayah could not come, and when Mary threw herself into a passion and beat and kicked her, she looked only more frightened and repeated that it was not possible for the ayah to come to Missy Sahib. There was 
something mysterious in the air that morning. Nothing was done in its regular order, and several of the native servants seemed missing, while those whom Mary saw slunk or hurried about with ashy and scared faces. But no one would tell her anything, and her ire did not come. She was actually left alone as the morning went on, and at last she wandered out into the garden and began to play by herself under a tree near the veranda. She pretended she was making a flower bed, and she stuck big scarlet hibiscus blossoms into little heaps of earth, all the time growing more and more angry and muttering to herself the things she would say, the names she would call Saidi when she returned. Pig, pig, daughter of pigs, she said, because to call a native a pig is the worst insult of all. She was grinding her teeth and saying this over and over again, when she heard her mother come out on the veranda with someone. She was with a fair young man, and they stood, talking together in low, strange voices. Mary knew the fair young man who looked like a boy. She had heard that he was a very young officer who had just come from England. The child stared at him, but she stared most at her mother. She always did this when she had a chance to see her, because the Mem Sahib, Mary used to call her that oftener than anything else, was such a tall, slim, pretty person, and wore such lovely clothes. Her hair was like curly silk, and she had a delicate little nose which seemed to be disdaining things, and she had large laughing eyes. All her clothes were thin and floating, and Mary said they were full of lace. They looked fuller of lace than ever this morning, but her eyes were not laughing at all. They were large and scared and lifted imploringly to the fair boy officer's face. Is it so very bad? Oh, is it? Mary heard her say. Awfully, the young man answered in a trembling voice. Awfully, Mrs. Lennox. You ought to have gone to the hills two weeks ago. The Mem Sahib wrung her hands. Oh, I know I ought, she cried. I only stayed to go to that silly dinner party. What a fool I was. At that very moment, such a loud sound of wailing broke out from the servants' quarters that she clutched the young man's arm. And Mary stood, shivering from head to foot. The wailing grew wilder and wilder. What is it? What is it? Mrs. Lennox gasped. Someone has died, answered the boy officer. You did not say it had broken out among your servants. I did not know, the Mem Sahib cried. Come with me, come with me. And she turned and ran into the house. After that, appalling things happened.
and the mysteriousness of the morning was explained to Mary. The cholera had broken out in its most fateful form, and people were dying like flies. The ayah had been taken ill in the night, and it was because she had just died that the servants had wailed in the huts. Before the next day, three other servants were dead, and others had run away in terror. There was panic on every side, and dying people in all the bungalows. During the confusion and bewilderment of the second day, Mary hid herself in the nursery, and was forgotten by everyone. Nobody thought of her, nobody wanted her, and strange things happened of which she knew nothing. Mary alternately cried and slept through the hours. She only knew that people were ill, and that she heard mysterious and frightening sounds. Once, she crept into the dining room and found it empty. There were partly finished meals on the table. Chairs and plates looked as if they had been hastily pushed back when the diners rose suddenly for some reason. The child ate some fruit and biscuits, and being thirsty, she drank a glass of wine, which stood nearly filled. It was sweet and she did not know how strong it was. Very soon it made her intensely drowsy, and she went back to her nursery and shut herself in again, frightened by cries she heard in the huts, by the hurrying sound of feet. The wine made her so sleepy that she could scarcely keep her eyes open, and she lay down on her bed and knew nothing more for a long time. Many things happened during the hours in which she slept so heavily, but she was not disturbed by the wails and the sounds of things being carried in and out of the bungalow. When she awakened, she lay and stared at the wall. The house was perfectly still. She had never known it to be so silent before. She heard neither voices nor footsteps, and wondered if everybody had got well of the cholera and all the trouble was over. She wondered also who would take care of her now her ayah was dead. There would be a new ayah and perhaps she would know some new stories. Mary had been rather tired of the old ones. She did not cry because her nurse had died. She was not an affectionate child, and had never cared much for anyone. The noise and hurrying about and wailing over the cholera had frightened her, and she had been angry, because no one seemed to remember that she was alive. Everyone was too panic-stricken to think of a little girl that no one was fond of. When people had the cholera, it seemed that they remembered nothing but themselves. But if everyone had got well again, surely 
someone would remember and come to look for her. But no one came, and as she lay waiting, the house seemed to grow more and more silent. She heard something rustling on the matting, and when she looked down she saw a little snake gliding along, watching her with eyes like jewels. She was not frightened, because he was a harmless little thing who would not hurt her, and he seemed in a hurry to get out of the room. He slipped under the door as she watched him. How queer and quiet it is, she said. It sounds as if there's no one in the bungalow but me and the snake. Almost the next minute she heard footsteps in the compound, and then on the veranda. They were men's footsteps, and the men entered into the bungalow and talked in low voices. No one went to meet or speak to them, and they seemed to open doors and look into rooms. What desolation, she heard one voice say. That pretty, pretty woman... I suppose the child, too. I heard there was a child, though no one ever saw her. Mary was standing in the middle of the nursery when they opened the door a few minutes later. She looked an ugly, cross little thing, and was frowning because she was beginning to be hungry and feel disgracefully neglected. The first man who came in was a large officer she had seen once talking to her father. He looked tired and troubled, but when he saw her he was so startled that he almost jumped back. Barney, he cried out, there is a child here, a child alone, in a place like this. Mercy on us, who is she? I am Mary Lennox, the little girl said drawing herself up stiffly. She thought the man was very rude to call her father's bungalow a place like this. I fell asleep when everyone had the cholera, and I have only just wakened up. Why does nobody come? It is the child no one ever saw, exclaimed the man, turning to his companions. She has actually been forgotten. Why was I forgotten? Mary said, stamping her foot. Why does nobody come? The young man, whose name was Barney, looked at her very sadly. Mary even thought she saw him wink his eyes as if to wink tears away. Poor little kid, he said. There is nobody left to come. It was in that strange and sudden way that Mary found out that she had neither father nor mother left, that they had died and been carried away in the night, and that the few native servants who had not died also had left the house as quickly as they could get out of it, none of them even remembering that there was a Missy Sahib. That was why the place was so quiet. It was true, there was no one in the bungalow but herself, and the little, 
rustling snake. Mary had liked to look at her mother from a distance, and she had thought her very pretty. But as she knew very little of her, she could scarcely have been expected to love her or to miss her very much when she was gone. She did not miss her at all, in fact, and as she was a self-absorbed child, she gave her entire thought to herself, as she had always done. If she had been older, she would no doubt have been very anxious at being left alone in the world. But she was very young, and as she had always been taken care of, she supposed she always would be. What she thought was that she would like to know if she was going to nice people, who would be polite to her and give her her own way, as her ayah and the other native servants had done. She knew that she was not going to stay at the English clergyman's house where she was taken at first. She did not want to stay. The English clergyman was poor, and he had five children, nearly all the same age, and they wore shabby clothes, and were always quarrelling, snatching toys from each other. Mary hated their untidy bungalow, and was so disagreeable to them that after the first day or two nobody would play with her. By the second day, they had given her a nickname, which made her furious. It was Basil who thought of it first. Basil was a little boy with impudent blue eyes and a turned-up nose, and Mary hated him. She was playing by herself under a tree, just as she had been playing the day the cholera broke out. She was making heaps of earth and paths for a garden, and Basil came and stood near to watch her. Presently, he got rather interested, and suddenly made a suggestion. "'Why don't you put a heap of stones there and pretend it is a rockery?' he said. "'There, in the middle,' and he leaned over her to point. "'Go away,' cried Mary. "'I don't want boys. Go away.' For a moment, Basil looked angry, and then he began to tease. He was always teasing his sisters. He danced round and round her and made faces and sang and laughed. Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and marigolds all in a row. He sang it until the other children heard and laughed too and the crosser Mary got, the more they sang, Mistress Mary, quite contrary. And after that, as long as she stayed with them, they called her Mistress Mary, quite contrary, when they spoke of her to each other, and often when they spoke to her. You're going to be sent home, Basil said to her, at the end of the week, and we're glad of it. I am glad of it too, answered Mary. Where is home? She doesn't know where home is, said Basil, with seven-year-old scorn. 
it's England, of course. Our grandmama lives there, and our sister Mabel was sent to her last year. You're not going to your grandmama. You have none. You're going to your uncle. His name is Mr. Archibald Craven. I don't know anything about him, snapped Mary. I know you don't, Basil answered. You don't know anything. Girls never do. I heard father and mother talking about him. He lives in a great, big, desolate old house in the country, and no one goes near him. He's so cross he won't let them. They wouldn't come if he would let them. He's a hunchback, and he's horrid. I, I don't believe you, said Mary. And she turned her back and stuck her fingers in her ears because she would not listen any more. But she thought over it a great deal afterward. And when Mrs. Crawford told her that night that she was going to sail away to England in a few days and go to her uncle, Mr. Archibald Craven, who lived at Misselthwaite Manor, she looked so stony and stubbornly uninterested that they did not know what to think about her. They tried to be kind to her, but she only turned her face away when Mrs. Crawford attempted to kiss her, and held herself stiffly when Mr. Crawford patted her shoulder. She is such a plain child, Mrs. Crawford said pityingly afterward. Her mother was such a pretty creature. She had a very pretty manner, too. And Mary has the most unattractive ways I have ever saw in a child. The children call her Mistress Mary quite contrary. And though it's naughty of them, one can't help understanding it. Perhaps if her mother had carried her pretty face and her pretty manners oftener into the nursery... Mary might have learned some pretty ways too. It is very sad now the poor beautiful thing is gone. To remember that many people never even knew that she had a child at all. I believe she scarcely ever looked at her, sighed Mrs. Crawford. When her ayah was dead, there was no one to give a thought to the little thing. Think of the servants running away leaving her all alone in that deserted bungalow. Colonel McGrew said he nearly jumped out of his skin when he opened the door and found her standing by herself in the middle of the room. Mary made the long voyage to England under the care of an officer's wife, who was taking her children to leave them in a boarding school. She was very much absorbed in her own little boy and girl was rather glad to hand the child over to the woman Mr. Archibald Craven sent to meet her in London. The woman was his housekeeper at Misselthwaite Manor, and her name was Mrs. Medlock. She was a stout woman with very red cheeks and sharp black eyes. She wore a very purple dress, a black silk mantle with jet fringe on it, and a black bonnet with purple velvet flowers which stuck up and trembled when she moved her head. Mary did not like her at all, 
but as she very seldom liked people, there was nothing remarkable in that. Besides which, it was very evident Mrs. Medlock did not think much of her. My word, she's a plain little piece of goods, she said, and we'd heard her mother was a beauty. She hasn't handed much of it down, has she, ma'am? Perhaps she will improve as she grows older, the officer's wife said good-naturedly. If she were not so sallow and had a nicer expression, her features are rather good. Children alter so much. She'll have to alter a good deal, answered Mrs. Medlock. And there's nothing likely to improve children at Misselthwaite, if you ask me. They thought Mary was not listening, because she was standing a little apart from them at the window of the private hotel they had gone to. She was watching the passing buses and cabs and people. But she heard quite well, and was made very curious about her uncle and the place he lived in. What sort of place was it? What would he be like? What was a hunchback? She had never seen one. Perhaps there were none in India. Since she had been living in other people's houses, she had had no ayah, and she had begun to feel lonely, and to think queer thoughts which were new to her. She had begun to wonder why she had never seemed to belong to anyone, even when her father and mother were alive. Other children seemed to belong to their fathers and mothers, but she had never seemed to really be anyone's little girl. She had had servants and food and clothes, but no one had taken any notice of her. She did not know that this was because she was a disagreeable child. But then, of course, she did not know that she was disagreeable. She often thought that other people were, but she did not know that she was so herself. She thought Mrs. Medlock the most disagreeable person she had ever seen, with her common, highly coloured face and her common fine bonnet. When the next day they set out on their journey to Yorkshire, she walked through the station to the railway carriage with her head up, trying to keep as far away from her as she could, because she didn't want to seem to belong to her. It would have made her angry to think people imagined she was her little girl. But Mrs. Medlock was not in the least disturbed by her and her thoughts. She was the kind of woman who would stand no nonsense from young ones. At least, that is what she would have said if she had been asked. She had not wanted to go to London, just when her sister Maria's daughter was going to be married. But she had a comfortable, well-paid place as housekeeper at Misselthwaite Manor, and the only way in which she could keep it was to do at once what Mr. Archibald Craven told her to do. She never dared even to ask a question. Captain Lennox and his wife died of the cholera, Mr. Craven had said in his short, cold way. Captain Lennox was my wife's brother, and I am their daughter's guardian. 
The child is to be brought here. You must go to London and bring her yourself. So she packed her small trunk and made the journey. Mary sat in her corner of the railway carriage and looked plain and fretful. She had nothing to read or to look at, and she had folded her thin little black-gloved hands in her lap. Her black dress made her look yellower than ever, and her limp light hair straggled from under the black crap hat. A more marred-looking young one I never saw in my life, Mrs. Medlock thought. Marred is a Yorkshire word and means spoiled and pettish. She had never seen a child who sat so still without doing anything. And at last she got tired of watching her and began to talk in a brisk, hard voice. I suppose I may as well tell you something about where you're going to, she said. Do you know anything about your uncle? No, said Mary. Never heard your father and mother talk about him? No, said Mary, frowning. She frowned because she remembered that her father and mother had never talked to her about anything in particular. Certainly they had never told her things. Hmph, muttered Mrs. Medlock, staring at her queer, unresponsive little face. She did not say any more for a few moments, and then she began again. I suppose you might as well be told something to prepare you. You are going to a queer place. Mary said nothing at all, and Mrs. Medlock looked rather discomfited by her apparent indifference. But after taking a breath, she went on. Not but that it's a grand big place in a gloomy way, and Mr. Craven's proud of it in his way, and that's gloomy enough too. The house is six hundred years old, and it's on the edge of the moor and there's near a hundred rooms in it, though most of them shut up and locked. And there's pictures and fine old furniture and things that's been there for ages. And there's a big park round it and gardens and trees with branches trailing to ground, some of them. She paused and took another breath. But there's nothing else, she ended suddenly. Mary had begun to listen in spite of herself. It all sounded so unlike India, and anything new rather attracted her. But she did not intend to look as if she were interested. That was one of her unhappy, disagreeable ways. So she sat, still. Well, said Mrs. Medlock, what do you think of it? Nothing she answered. I know nothing about such places. That made Mrs. Medlock laugh a short sort of laugh. Eh, she said, but you are like an old woman. Don't you care? Doesn't matter, said Mary, whether I care or not. You are right enough there, said Mrs. Medlock. It doesn't. What you're to be kept at Misselthwaite Manor for, I don't know, unless because it's the easiest way. 
He's not going to trouble himself about you. That's sure and certain. He never troubles himself about no one. She stopped herself as if she had just remembered something in time. He's got a crooked back, she said. That set him wrong. He was a sour young man and got no good of all his money and big place till he was married. Mary's eyes turned toward her in spite of her intention not to seem to care. She had never thought of the hunchbacks being married, and she was a trifle surprised. Mrs. Medlock saw this, and as she was a talkative woman, she continued with more interest. This was one way of passing some of the time, at any rate. She was a sweet, pretty thing, and he'd have walked the world over to get her a blade of grass she wanted. Nobody thought she'd marry him, but she did. And people said she'd married him for his money, but she didn't. When she died, Mary gave a little involuntary jump. Oh, did she die? she exclaimed, quite without meaning to. She had just remembered a French fairy story she had once read called Riquet et la Hoop. It had been about a poor hunchback and a beautiful princess, and it had made her suddenly sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven. Yes, she died, Mrs. Medlock answered, and it made him queerer than ever. He cares about nobody. He won't see people. Most of the time, he goes away, and when he's at Misselthwaite, he shuts himself up in the West Wing and won't let anyone but Pitcher see him. Pitcher's an old fellow, but he took care of him when he was child and he knows his ways. It sounded like something in a book, and it did not make Mary feel cheerful. A house with a hundred rooms, nearly all shut up and with their doors locked. A house on the edge of a moor, whatever a moor was, sounded dreary. A man with a crooked back, who shut himself up also. She stared out the window, with her lips pinched together, and it seemed quite natural that the rain should have begun to pour down in grey slanting lines and splash and stream down the window panes. If the pretty wife had been alive, she might have made things cheerful by being something like her own mother, running in and out, going to parties as she had done in frocks full of lace. But she was not there anymore. You needn't expect to see him because ten to one you won't, said Mrs. Medlock. And you mustn't expect that there'll be people to talk to you. You'll have to play and look about after yourself. You'll be told what rooms you can go into, what rooms you're to keep out of. There's gardens enough, but when you're in the house, don't go wandering and poking about. Mr. Craven won't have it. I shall not want to go poking about, said sour little Mary. And just as suddenly as she had begun to be rather sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven, she began to cease to be sorry and to think he was unpleasant enough to deserve all that had happened to him.
and she turned her face toward the streaming panes of the window of the railway carriage, and gazed out at the grey rainstorm, which looked as if it would go on forever and ever. She watched it so long and steadily that the greyness grew heavier and heavier before her eyes, and she fell asleep. She slept a long time, and when she awakened, Mrs. Medlock had bought a lunch basket at one of the stations, and they had some chicken and cold beef and bread and butter and some hot tea. The rain seemed to be streaming down more heavily than ever, and everybody in the station wore wet and glistening waterproofs. The guard lighted the lamps in the carriage, and Mrs. Medlock cheered up very much over her tea and chicken and beef. She ate a great deal, and afterward fell asleep herself, and Mary sat and stared at her, and watched her fine bonnet slip on one side until she herself fell asleep once more in the corner of the carriage, lulled by the splashing of the rain against the windows. It was quite dark when she awakened again. The train had stopped at a station, and Mrs. Medlock was shaking her. You have had a sleep, she said. It's time to open your eyes. We're at Thwaite Station, and we've got a long drive before us. Mary stood up and tried to keep her eyes open, while Mrs. Medlock collected her parcels. The little girl did not offer to help her, because in India, native servants always picked up or carried things, and it seemed quite proper that other people should wait on one. The station was a small one, and nobody but themselves seemed to be getting out of the train. The station master spoke to Mrs. Medlock in a rough, good-natured way, pronouncing his words in a queer, broad fashion, which Mary found out afterward was Yorkshire. "'I see thou's got back,' he said, "'and thou's brought the young'un with thee.' "'Aye, that's her,' answered Mrs. Medlock, speaking with a Yorkshire accent herself, and jerking her head over her shoulder toward Mary. "'How's thy missus?' "'Well, they know. The carriage is waiting outside for thee.' A brougham stood on the road before the little outside platform. Mary saw that it was a smart carriage, and that it was a smart footman who helped her in. His long waterproof coat and the waterproof covering of his hat were shining and dripping with rain as everything was, the burly station master included. When he shut the door, mounted the box with the coachman, and they drove off, the little girl found herself seated in a comfortably cushioned corner, but she was not inclined to go to sleep again. She sat and looked out the window, curious to see something of the road over which she was being driven to the queer place Mrs. Medlock had spoken of. She was not at all a timid child, 
and she was not exactly frightened. But she felt that there was no knowing what might happen in a house with a hundred rooms nearly all shut up. A house standing on the edge of a moor. What is a moor? she said suddenly to Mrs. Medlock. Look out the window in about ten minutes and you'll see, the woman answered. We've got to drive five miles across Mistlemoor before we get to Manor. You won't see much because it's a dark night, but you can see something. Mary asked no more questions, but waited in the darkness of her corner, keeping her eyes on the window. The carriage lamps cast rays of light a little distance ahead of them, and she caught glimpses of the things they passed. After they had left the station, they had driven through a tiny village, and she had seen whitewashed cottages and the lights of a public house. Then they had passed a church and a vicarage and a little shop window or so in a cottage with toys and sweets and odd things set out for sale. Then they were on the high road and she saw hedges and trees. After that, there seemed nothing different for a long time. Or at least it seemed a long time to her. At last, the horses began to go more slowly, as if they were climbing uphill. And presently there seemed to be no more hedges and no more trees. She could see nothing, in fact, but a dense darkness on either side. She leaned forward and pressed her face against the window just as the carriage gave a big jolt. Eh, we're on the moor now, sure enough, said Mrs. Medlock. The carriage lamp shed a yellow light on a rough-looking road, which seemed to be cut through bushes and low-growing things, which ended in the great expanse of dark, apparently spread out before and around them. A wind was rising and making a singular, wild, low, rushing sound. It's, it's not the sea, is it? said Mary, looking round at her companion. No, not it, answered Mrs. Medlock. Nor it isn't fields nor mountains. It's just miles and miles and miles of wild land that nothing grows on but heather and gorse and broom, and nothing lives on but wild ponies and sheep. I feel as if it might be the sea, if there were water on it, said Mary. It sounds like the sea just now. That's the wind blowing through the bushes, Mrs. Medlock said. It's a wild, dreary enough place to my mind, though there's plenty that likes it, particularly when the heather's in bloom. On and on they drove through the darkness, and though the rain stopped, the wind rushed by and whistled and made strange sounds. The road went up and down, and several times the carriage passed over a little bridge beneath which water rushed very fast, with a great deal of noise. Mary felt as if the drive would never come to an end, that the wide bleak moor was a wide expanse of black ocean, 
through which she was passing on a strip of dry land. I don't like it, she said to herself. I don't like it. And she pinched her thin lips more tightly together. The horses were climbing up a hilly piece of road when she first caught sight of a light. Mrs. Medlock saw it as soon as she did and drew a long sigh of relief. Eh, I'm glad to see that bit of light twinkling, she exclaimed. It's light in lodge window. We shall get a good cup of tea after a bit, at all events. It was after a bit, as she said, for when the carriage passed through the park gates, there was still two miles of avenue to drive through, and the trees, which nearly met overhead, made it seem as if they were driving through a long, dark vault. They drove out of the vault, into a clear space, and stopped before an immensely long but low-built house, which seemed to ramble round a stone court. At first Mary thought that there were no lights at all in the windows, but as she got out of the carriage, she saw that one room in a corner upstairs showed a dull glow. The entrance door was a huge one, made of massive, curiously shaped panels of oak studded with big iron nails and bound with great iron bars. It opened into an enormous hall, which was so dimly lighted that the faces in the portraits on the walls and the figures in the suits of armour made Mary feel like she did not want to look at them. As she stood on the stone floor, she looked a very small, odd little black figure, and she felt as small and lost and odd as she looked. A neat, thin old man stood near the manservant, who opened the door for them. You are to take her to her room, he said in a husky voice. He doesn't want to see her. He's going to London in the morning. Very well, Mr. Pitcher, Mrs. Medlock answered. So long as I know what's expected of me, I can manage. What's expected of you, Mrs. Medlock, Mr. Pitcher said, is that you make sure that he's not disturbed, and that he doesn't see what he doesn't want to see. And then Mary Lennox was led up a broad staircase, and down a long corridor, and up a short flight of steps, and through another corridor, and another, until a door opened in a wall, and she found herself in a room, with a fire in it, and a supper on a table. Mrs. Medlock said unceremoniously, Well, here you are. This room and the next are where you'll live, and you must keep to them. Don't you forget that. It was in this way Mistress Mary arrived at Misselthwaite Manor, and she had perhaps never felt quite so contrary in all her life. When she opened her eyes in the morning, it was because a young housemaid had come into her room to light the fire and was kneeling on the hearthrug, raking out the cinders noisily. 
Mary lay and watched her for a few moments, and then began to look around the room. She'd never seen a room at all like it, and thought it was curious and gloomy. The walls were covered with tapestry, with a forest scene embroidered on it. There were fantastically dressed people under the trees, and in the distance there was a glimpse of the turrets of a castle. There were hunters and horses and dogs and ladies. Mary felt as if she were in the forest with them. Out of a deep window she could see a great climbing stretch of land which seems to have no trees on it, and to look rather like an endless dull purplish sea. What is that? she said, pointing out of the window. Martha, the young housemaid, who had just risen to her feet, looked and pointed also. That there, she said. Yes, that's the moor, with a good-natured grin. Does the like it? No, answered Mary. I hate it. That's because thou art not used to it, Martha said, going back to her hearth. Thou thinks it's too big and bare now, but thou will like it. Do you? inquired Mary. Aye, that I do, answered Martha, cheerfully polishing away at the grate. I just love it. It's none bare. It's covered with growing things. It smells sweet. It's fair lovely in spring and summer when the gorse and broom and heather's in flower. It smells honey, and there's such a lot of fresh air. And the sky looks so high, and the bees and skylarks make such a nice noise humming and singing. Eh, I wouldn't live away from the moor for anything. Mary listened to her with a grave, puzzled expression. The native servants she had been used to in India were not in the least like this. They were obsequious and servile, and did not presume to talk to their masters as if they were their equals. They made salams and called them protector of the poor and names of the sort. Indian servants were commanded to do things not asked. It was not the custom to say please and thank you, and Mary had always slapped her ire in the face when she was angry. She wondered a little what this girl would do if one slapped her in the face. She was a round, rosy, good-natured-looking creature, but she had a sturdy way which made Mistress Mary wonder if she might not even slap back if the person who slapped her was only a little girl. "'You are a strange servant,' she said from her pillows rather haughtily. Martha sat up on her heels with her blacking brush in her hand and laughed, without seeming the least out of temper. "'I know that,' she said. "'If there was a grand missus at Misselthwaite, I should never have been even one of the under-housemaids.' I might have been let to be scullery maid, but I'd never have been let upstairs. I'm too common and I talk too much Yorkshire, but this is a funny house for all it's so grand. Seems like there's neither master nor mistress, except Mr. Pitcher and Mrs. Medlock. Mr. Craven, he won't be troubled about anything when he's here, and he's nearly always away. Mrs. Medlock gave me the place out of kindness. She told me she never could have done it if Misselthwaite had been like other big houses. Are you going to be my servant? Mary asked, still in her imperious little Indian way. Martha began to rub her grate again. A Mrs. Medlock's servant, she said stoutly. 
and she's Mr. Cravens. But I'm to do the housemaid's work up here and wait on you a bit. But you won't need much waiting on. Who is going to dress me? demanded Mary. Martha sat up on her heels again and stared. She spoke in a broad Yorkshire in her amazement. Canna the dress thy son, she said. What do you mean? I don't understand your language, said Mary. Eh, hey, I forgot, Martha said. Mrs. Medlock told me I'd have to be careful or you wouldn't know what I was saying. I mean, can't you put on your own clothes? No, answered Mary, quite indignantly. I never did in my life. My eye addressed me, of course. Well, said Martha, evidently not in the least aware that she was impudent. It's time thou should learn. I cannot begin younger. It'll do thee good to wait on thy sen a bit. My mother always said she couldn't see why grand people's children didn't turn out fair fools, what were nurses and being washed and dressed and took out to walk as if they was puppies. It is different in India, said Mistress Mary disdainfully. She could scarcely stand this. But Martha was not at all crushed. Eh, I can see it's different, she answered almost sympathetically. I dare say it's because there's such a lot of blacks there instead of respectable white people. When I heard you was coming from India, I thought you was black too. Mary sat up in bed, furious. What? she said. What? You thought I was a native, you... you daughter of a pig? Martha stared and looked hot. Who are you calling names? she said. You needn't be so vexed. That's not the way for a young lady to talk. I've nothing against the blacks. When you read about them in tracks, they're always very religious. You always read as a black man's and a brother. Never seen a black and was fair pleased to think I was going to see one close. When I come in to light your fire this morning, I crept up to your bed and pulled cover back carefully to look at you. And there you was, disappointedly. No more black than me, for all you're so yellow. Mary did not even try to control her rage and humiliation. You thought I was a native. You dared. You don't know anything about natives. They're not people. They're servants who must salam to you. You know nothing about India. You know nothing about anything. She was in such a rage and felt so helpless before the girl's simple stare. And somehow she suddenly felt so horribly lonely and far away from everything she understood, and which understood her. She threw herself face downward on the pillows and burst into passionate sobbing. She sobbed so unrestrainedly that good-natured Yorkshire Martha was a little frightened and quite sorry for her. She went to the bed and bent over her. Hey. You mustn't cry like that there, she begged. You mustn't for sure. I didn't know you'd be vexed. I didn't know anything about anything. Just like you said. I beg your pardon, miss. Do stop crying. There was something comforting and really friendly in her queer Yorkshire speech and sturdy way, which had a good effect on Mary. She gradually ceased crying and became quiet. Martha looked relieved. It's time for thee to get up now, she said. 
Mrs. Medlock said I was to carry thy breakfast and tea and the dinner into the room next to this. It's been made into a nursery for thee. I'll help thee on with thy clothes if thou'll get out of bed. If the buttons are at the back, thou cannot button them up thyself. When Mary at last decided to get up, the clothes Martha took from the wardrobe were not the ones she had worn when she arrived the night before with Mrs. Medlock. Those not mine, she said. Mine are black. She looked the thick white wool coat and dress over, and added with cool approval, Those are nicer than mine. These are the ones they must put on, Martha answered. Mr. Craven ordered Mrs. Medlock to get them in London. He said, I won't have a child dressed in black wandering about like lost soul. He said it'd make the place sadder than it is. Put colour on her. Mother said she knew what he meant. Mother always knows what a body means. She doesn't hold with black herself. I hate black things, said Mary. The dressing process was one which taught them both something. Martha had buttoned up her little sisters and brothers, but she had never seen a child who stood still and waited for another person to do things for her, as if she had neither hands nor feet of her own. Why doesn't that put on their own shoes? she said, when Mary quietly held out her foot. My ayah did it, answered Mary, staring. It was the custom. She said that very often. It was the custom. The native servants were always saying it. If one told them to do a thing their ancestors had not done for a thousand years, they gazed at one mildly and said, It is not the custom, and one knew that was the end of the matter. It had not been the custom that Mistress Mary should do anything, but stand and allow herself to be dressed like a doll. But before she was ready for breakfast, she began to suspect that her life at Misselthwaite Manor would end by teaching her a number of things quite new to her. Things such as putting on her own shoes and stockings, and picking up things she let fall. If Martha had been a well-trained, fine young lady's maid, she would have been more subservient and respectful and would have known that it was her business to brush hair, button boots, pick things up and lay them away. She was, however, only an untrained Yorkshire rustic who had been brought up in a moorland cottage with a swarm of little brothers and sisters who had never dreamed of doing anything but waiting on themselves and on the younger ones who were either babies in arms or just learning to totter about and tumble over things. If Mary Lennox had been a child who was ready to be amused, she would perhaps have laughed at Martha's readiness to talk. But Mary only listened to her coldly, and wondered at her freedom of manner. At first, she was not at all interested, but gradually, as the girl rattled on in her good-tempered, homely way, Mary began to notice what she was saying. Eh, you should see them all, she said. There's twelve of us and my father only gets sixteen shilling a week. I can tell you my mother's put it to get porridge from all. They tumble about on the moor and play there all day and mother says the air of the moor fattens them. 
She says she believes they eat the grass, same as the wild ponies do. Ah, Dickon. He's twelve years old, and he's got a young pony he calls his own. Where did he get it? asked Mary. He found it on the moor, with its mother when it was a little one. He began to make friends with it, and he gave it bits of bread and pluck young grass for it. And it got to like him, so it follows him about, and it lets him get on his back. Dickens a kind lad. Animals likes him. Mary had never possessed an animal pet of her own, and had always thought she should like one. She began to feel a slight interest in Dickon, and as she had never been before interested in anyone but herself, it was the dawning of a healthy sentiment. When she went into the room, which had been made into a nursery for her, she found that it was rather like the one she had slept in. It was not a child's room, but a grown-up person's room, with gloomy old pictures on the walls and heavy old oak chairs. A table in the centre was set with a good, substantial breakfast. But she had always had a very small appetite, and she looked with something more than indifference at the first plate Martha set before her. "'I don't want it,' she said. "'That doesn't want thy porridge!' Martha exclaimed incredulously. No. That doesn't know how good it is. Put a bit of treacle on it or a bit of sugar. I don't want it, repeated Mary. Eh, said Martha. I can't abide to see good victuals go to waste. If our children was at this table, they'd clean it there in five minutes. Why, said Mary coldly. Why, echoed Martha. "'Cause they scarce ever had their stomachs full in their lives. "'They're as hungry as young orcs and foxes.' "'I don't know what it is to be hungry,' said Mary, "'with the indifference of ignorance.' "'Martha looked indignant. "'Well, it would do thee good to try it. "'I can see that plain enough,' she said outspokenly. "'I've no patience with folks as sits and just stares at good bread and meat. "'My word.' Don't I wish Dickon and Phil and Jane and the rest of them had what's here under their pinafores? Why don't you take it to them? suggested Mary. It's not mine, answered Martha stoutly. And this isn't my day out. I get my day out once a month, same as rest. Then I go home, clean up for mother, and give her a day's rest. Mary drank some tea and ate a little toast and some marmalade. You wrap up warm and run out and play, you, said Martha. It'll do you good, give you some stomach for your meat. Mary went to the window. There were gardens and paths and big trees, but everything looked dull and wintry. Out. Why should I go out on a day like this? Well, if that doesn't go out, I'll have to stay in. And what has that got to do? Mary glanced about her. There was nothing to do. When Mrs. Medlock had prepared the nursery, she had not thought of amusement. Perhaps it would be better to go and see what the gardens were like. "'Who will go with me?' she inquired. Martha stared. "'You'll go by yourself?' she answered. "'You'll have to learn to play like all the children does when they haven't got sisters and brothers. Our Dickon goes off the moor by himself and plays for hours. That's how he made friends with the pony.' He's got sheep on the moor that knows him, and birds as come and eats out of his hand. 
However little there is to eat, he always saves a bit of his bread to coax his pets. It was really this mention of Dickon which made Mary decide to go out, though she was not aware of it. There would be birds outside, though there would not be ponies or sheep. They would be different from the birds in India, and it might amuse her to look at them. Martha found her coat and hat for her, and a pair of stout little boots, and she showed her her way downstairs. If that goes round that way, they'll come to the gardens, she said, pointing to a gate in a wall of shrubbery. There's lots of flowers in the summertime, but there's nothing blooming now. She seemed to hesitate a second before she added, One of the gardens is locked up. No one's been in it for ten years. Why? asked Mary in spite of herself. Here was another locked door, added to the hundred in a strange house. Mr. Craven had it shut when his wife died so sudden. He won't let no one go inside. It was her garden. He locked the door and dug a hole and buried the key. There's Mrs. Medlock's bell ringing. I must run. After she was gone, Mary turned down the walk which led to the door in the shrubbery. She could not help thinking about the garden, which no one had been in for ten years. She wondered what it would look like, whether there were any flowers still alive in it. When she had passed through the shrubbery gate, she found herself in great gardens, with wide lawns and winding walks with clipped borders. There were trees and flower beds and evergreens clipped into strange shapes. A large pool with an old grey fountain in its midst. But the flower beds were bare and wintry, and the fountain was not playing. This was not the garden which was shut up. How could a garden be shut up? You could always walk into a garden. She was just thinking this when she saw that, at the end of the path she was following. There seemed to be a long wall, with ivy growing over it. She was not familiar enough with England to know that she was coming upon the kitchen gardens, where the vegetables and fruit were growing. She went toward the wall and found that there was a green door in the ivy, and that it stood open. This was not the closed garden, evidently, and she could go into it. She went through the door, and found that it was a garden with walls all round it, and that it was only one of several walled gardens, which seemed to open into one another. She saw another open green door, revealing bushes and pathways between beds containing winter vegetables. Fruit trees were trained flat against the wall, and over some of the beds there were glass frames. The place was bare and ugly enough, Mary thought, as she stood and stared about her. It might be nicer in summer when things were green, but there was nothing pretty about it now. Presently, an old man with a spade over his shoulder walked through the door leading from the second garden. He looked startled when he saw Mary, and then touched his cap. He had a surly old face, and did not seem at all pleased to see her. But then she was displeased with his garden, 
and wore her quite contrary expression, and certainly did not seem at all pleased to see him. What is this place? she asked. One of the kitchen gardens, he answered. What is that? said Mary, pointing through the other green door. Another of them? Shortly. There's another on the other side of the wall, and there's the orchard on the other side of that. Can I go in them? asked Mary. If thou likes, but there's naught to see. Mary made no response. She went down the path and through the second green door. There she found more walls and winter vegetables and glass frames. But in the second wall there was another green door, and it was not open. Perhaps it led into the garden which no one had seen for ten years. As she was not at all a timid child, and always did what she wanted to do, Mary went to the green door and turned the handle. She hoped the door would not open, because she wanted to be sure she had found the mysterious garden. But it did open quite easily, and she walked through it and found herself in an orchard. There were walls round it also, and trees trained against them, and there were bare fruit trees growing in the winter-browned grass. But there was no green door to be seen anywhere, Mary looked for it, and yet when she entered the upper end of the garden, she had noticed that the wall did not seem to end with the orchard, but to extend beyond it, as if it enclosed a place at the other side. She could see the tops of trees above the wall, and when she stood still she saw a bird with a bright red breast sitting on the topmost branch of one of them and suddenly he burst into his winter song, almost as if he had caught sight of her and was calling to her. She stopped and listened to him. Somehow his cheerful, friendly little whistle gave her a pleased feeling. Even a disagreeable little girl may be lonely, and the big closed house, and the big bare moor, and the big bare gardens had made this one feel as if there was no one left in the world but herself. If she had been an affectionate child, who had been used to being loved, she would have broken her heart. But even though she was Mistress Mary quite contrary, she was desolate, and the bright breasted little bird brought a look into her sour little face which was almost smile. She listened to him until he flew away. He was not like an Indian bird, and she liked him, and wondered if she should ever see him again. Perhaps he lived in the mysterious garden, and knew all about it. Perhaps it was because she had nothing whatsoever to do that she thought so much of the deserted garden. She was curious about it, and wanted to see what it was like. Why had Mr. Archibald Craven buried the key? If he had liked his wife so much, why did he hate her garden? She wondered if she would ever see him, but she knew that if she did she should not like him, 
and he would not like her, and that she should only stand and stare at him and say nothing, though she should be wanting dreadfully to ask him why he had done such a queer thing. People never like me, and I never like people, she thought, and I can never talk as the Crawford children could. They were always talking and laughing and making noises. She thought of the robin and of the way he seemed to sing his song at her. And as she remembered the treetop he perched on, she stopped rather suddenly on the path. I believe that tree was in the secret garden. I feel sure it was. There was a wall round the place, and there was no door, she said. She walked back into the first kitchen garden she had entered, and found the old man digging there. She went and stood beside him and watched him for a few moments in her cold little way. He took no notice of her, and so at last she spoke to him. I have been into the other gardens, she said. There was nothing to prevent thee, he answered crustily. I went into the orchard. There was no dog at the door to bite thee, he answered. There was no door there into the other garden, said Mary. What garden, he said in a rough voice, stopping his digging for a moment. The one on the other side of the wall, answered Mistress Mary. There are trees there. I saw the tops of them. A bird with a red breast was sitting on one of them, and he sang. To her surprise, the surly old weather-beaten face actually changed its expression. A slow smile spread over it, and the gardener looked quite different. It made her think that it was curious how much nicer a person looked when he smiled. She had not thought of it before. He turned about to the orchard side of his garden and began to whistle, a low, soft whistle. She could not understand how such a surly man could make such a coaxing sound. Almost the next moment a wonderful thing happened. She heard a soft little rushing flight through the air, and it was the bird with the red breast flying to them, and he actually alighted on the big clod of earth quite near to the gardener's foot. Here he is, chuckled the old man, and he spoke to the bird as if he was speaking to a child. Where has thou been, thou cheeky little beggar? I've not seen thee before today. Has thou begun the cotton season this early into season? The bird put his tiny head on one side and looked up at him with his soft bright eye, which was like a black dewdrop. He seemed quite familiar and not the least afraid. He hopped about and pecked the earth briskly, looking for seeds and insects. It actually gave Mary a queer feeling in her heart because he was so pretty and cheerful and seemed so like a person. He had a tiny plump body and a delicate beak 
and slender delicate legs. Will he always come when you call him? She asked, almost in a whisper. Aye, that he will. I've known him ever since he was fledgling. He come out of the nest in the other garden, and when first he flew over the wall, he were too weak to fly back for a few days, and we got friendly. When he went over the wall again, the rest of the brood was gone, and he was lonely, and he come back to me. What kind of bird is he? Mary asked. Doesn't thou know? He's a robin redbreast, and they're the friendliest, curiousest birds alive. They're almost as friendly as dogs, if you know how to get on with them. Watch him pecking about there, looking round at us now and again. He knows we're talking about him. It was the queerest thing in the world to see the old fellow. He looked at the plump, little scarlet, waistcoated bird, as if he were both proud and fond of him. He's a conceited one, he chuckled. He likes to hear folk talk about him. And curious, bless me, there never was his like for curiosity and meddling. He's always coming to see what I'm planting. He knows all the things Master Craven never troubles his soul to find out. He's the head gardener he is. The robin hopped about busily pecking the soil and now and then stopped and looked at them a little. Mary thought his black dewdrop eyes gazed at her with great curiosity. It really seemed as if he were finding out all about her. The queer feeling in her heart increased. Where did the rest of the brood fly to? she asked. There's no knowing. The old ones turn them out on the nest and make them fly and they're scattered before you know it. This one was a knowing one, and he knew he was lonely. Mistress Mary went a step nearer to the robin, and looked at him very hard. I'm lonely, she said. She had not known before that this was one of the things that made her feel sour and cross. She seemed to find it out, when the robin looked at her, and she looked at the robin. The old gardener pushed his cap back on his bald head and stared at her a minute. Art thou the little wench from India? he asked. Mary nodded. And no wonder thou'rt lonely. Thou'lt be lonelier before thou's done, he said. He began to dig again, driving his spade deep into the rich black garden soil, while the robin hopped about very busily employed. What is your name? Mary inquired. He stood up to answer her. Ben Weatherstaff, he answered. And then he added with a surly chuckle, I'm lonely myself, except when he's with me. And he jerked his thumb toward the robin. He's the only friend I got. I have no friends at all, said Mary. I never had. My ayah didn't like me and I never played with anyone. It is a Yorkshire habit to say what you think with blunt frankness. And old Ben Weatherstaff was a Yorkshire moorman. Thou and me a good bit alike, he said. We was wove out of the same cloth. We're neither of us good looking. 
And we're both of us as sour as we look. We got the same nasty tempers, both of us, I'll warrant. This was plain speaking. And Mary Lennox had never heard the truth about herself in her life. Native servants always salaamed and submitted to you, whatever you did. She had never thought much about her looks. But she wondered if she was as unattractive as Ben Weatherstaff. And she also wondered if she looked as sour as he had looked before the robin came. She actually began to wonder if she was also nasty-tempered. She felt uncomfortable. Suddenly a clear rippling little sound broke out near her, and she turned around. She was standing a few feet from a young apple tree. The robin had flown onto one of its branches and had burst out into a scrap of a song. Ben Weatherstaff laughed outright. "'What did he do that for?' asked Mary. "'He's made up his mind to make friends with thee,' replied Ben. "'Hang me if he hasn't took a fancy to thee.' "'To me,' said Mary, and she moved toward the little tree softly and looked up. "'Would you make friends with me?' she said to the robin, just as if she was speaking to a person. Would you? And she did not say it either in her hard little voice or in her imperious Indian voice, but in a tone so soft and eager and coaxing that Ben Weatherstaff was as surprised as she had been when she heard him whistle. Why, he cried out, I said that as nice and human as if thou was a real child, instead of a sharp old woman. Thou said it almost like Dickon talks to his wild things on the moor. Do you know Dickon? Mary asked, turning round rather in a hurry. Everybody knows him. Dickon's wandering about everywhere. The very blackberries and heatherbells know him. I warrant the foxes show him where the cub lies and the skylarks doesn't hide their nests from him. Mary would have liked to ask some more questions. She was almost as curious about Dickon as she was about the deserted garden. But just that moment, the robin, who had ended his song, gave a little shake of his wings, spread them, and flew away. He had made his visit and had other things to do. He's flown over the wall, Mary cried out watching him. He's flown into the orchard. He's flown across the other wall, into the garden where there's no door. He lives there, said old Ben. He came out the egg there. If he's caught and he's making up to some young madam of a robin that lives amongst the old rose trees there. Rose trees, said Mary. Are there rose trees? Ben Weatherstaff took up his spade again and began to dig. There was ten years ago, he mumbled. I should like to see them, said Mary. Where is the green door? There must be a door somewhere. Ben drove his spade deep and looked as uncompanionable as he had looked when she first saw him. There was ten years ago, but there isn't now, he said. No door, cried Mary. There must be. 
None as anyone can find, and none as is anyone's business. Don't you be a meddlesome wench and poke your nose where it's no cause to go. Here, I must go on with my work. Get you gone and play you, of no more time. And he actually stopped digging, threw his spade over his shoulder and walked off, without even glancing at her or saying goodbye. At first, each day which passed by for Mary Lennox was exactly like the others. Every morning, she awoke in her tapestried room and found Martha kneeling upon the hearth, building her fire. Every morning, she ate her breakfast in the nursery, which had nothing amusing in it. And after each breakfast, she gazed out the window, across to the huge moor, which seemed to spread out on all sides and climb up to the sky. And after she had stared for a while, she realized that if she did not go out, she would have to stay in and do nothing. And so she went out. She did not know that this was the best thing she could have done. And she did not know that when she began to walk quickly, or even run down the paths and down the avenue, she was stirring her slow blood and making herself stronger by fighting with the wind which swept down from the moor. She ran only to make herself warm, and she hated the wind which rushed at her face and roared and held her back as if it were some giant she could not see. But the big breaths of rough, fresh air blown over the heather filled her lungs with something which was good for her whole thin body and whipped some red colour into her cheeks and brightened her dull eyes when she did not know anything about it. But after a few days spent almost entirely out of doors, she wakened one morning, knowing what it was to be hungry. And when she sat down to her breakfast, she did not glance disdainfully at her porridge and push it away. But she took up her spoon and began to eat it, and went on eating until her bowl was empty. That's got on well enough with that this morning, didn't that? said Martha. It tastes nice today, said Mary, feeling a little surprised at herself. It's the air the mark's given thee stomach for the victuals, answered Martha. It's lucky for thee that thou's got victuals as well as appetite. There's been twelve in our cottage as had the stomach and nothing to put in it. You go on playing you outdoors every day and you'll get some flesh on your bones and you won't be so yellow. I don't play, said Mary. I have nothing to play with. Nothing to play with, exclaimed Martha. Our children play with sticks and stones. They just runs about and shouts and looks at things. Mary did not shout, but she looked at things. There was nothing else to do. She walked round and round the gardens and wandered about the paths in the park. Sometimes she looked for Ben Weatherstaff, but though several times she saw him at work, he was too busy to look at her, or was too surly. 
Once, when she was walking toward him, he picked up his spade and turned away, as if he did it on purpose. One place she went to oftener than to any other. It was the long walk outside the gardens with the walls round them. There were bare flower beds on either side of it, and against the walls ivy grew thickly. There was one part of the wall where the creeping dark green leaves were more bushy than elsewhere. It seemed as if for a long time that part had been neglected. The rest of it had been clipped and made to look neat. But this lower end of the walk had not been trimmed at all. A few days after she had talked to Ben Weatherstaff, Mary stopped to notice this and wondered why it was so. She had just paused and was looking up at a long spray of ivy swinging in the wind when she saw a gleam of scarlet and heard a brilliant chirp and there on top of the wall forward perched Ben Weatherstaff's robin redbreast tilting forward to look at her with his small head on one side oh she cried out is it you is it you and it did not seem at all queer to her that she spoke to him as if she was sure that he would understand and answer her. He did answer. He twittered and chirped and hopped along the wall as if he were telling her all sorts of things. It seemed to Mistress Mary as if she understood him too, though he was not speaking in words. It was as if he said, Good morning. Isn't the wind nice? Isn't the sun nice? Isn't everything nice? Let us both chirp and hop and twitter. Come on, come on. Mary began to laugh, and as he hopped and took little flights along the wall, she ran after him. Poor little thin, sallow, ugly Mary. She actually looked almost pretty for a moment. I like you. I like you, she cried out, pattering down the walk. And she chirped and tried to whistle, which last she did not know how to do in the least. But the robin seemed to be quite satisfied, and chirped and whistled back at her. At last he spread his wings and made a darting flight to the top of a tree where he perched and sang loudly. That reminded Mary of the first time she had seen him. He had been swinging on a treetop then, and she had been standing in the orchard. Now she was on the other side of the orchard, and standing in the path outside a wall, much lower down. And there was the same tree inside. It's in the garden no one can go into, she said to herself. It's the garden without a door. He lives in there. How I wish I could see what it is like. She ran up the walk to the green door she had entered the first morning. 
Then she ran down the path, through the other door, and then into the orchard. And when she stood and looked up, there was the tree on the other side of the wall. And there was the robin, just finishing his song and beginning to preen his feathers with his beak. It is the garden, she said. I'm sure it is. She walked round and looked closely at that side of the orchard wall, but she only found what she had found before, that there was no door in it. Then she ran through the kitchen gardens again, and out into the walk outside at the long ivy-covered wall. And she walked to the end of it and looked at it. But there was no door. And then she walked to the other end, looking again, but there was no door. It's very queer, she said. Ben Weatherstaff said there was no door and there is no door. But there must have been one ten years ago, because Mr. Craven buried the key. This gave her so much to think of that she began to be quite interested and feel that she was not sorry that she had come to Misselthwaite Manor. In India, she had always felt hot and too languid to care much about anything. The fact was that the fresh wind from the moor had begun to blow the cobwebs out of her young brain and to waken her up a little. She stayed out of doors nearly all day, and when she sat down to her supper at night she felt hungry and drowsy and comfortable. She did not feel cross when Martha chattered away. She felt as if she rather liked to hear her, and at last she thought she would ask her a question. She asked it after she had finished her supper and had sat down on the hearthrug before the fire. Why did Mr. Craven hate the garden, she said. She had made Martha stay with her, and Martha had not objected at all. She was very young and used to a crowded cottage full of brothers and sisters, and she found it dull in the great servant's hall downstairs, where the footman and upper housemaids made fun of her Yorkshire speech and looked upon her as a common little thing, and sat and whispered among themselves. Martha liked to talk, and the strange child who had lived in India and been waited upon by blacks was novelty enough to attract her. She sat down on the hearth herself without waiting to be asked. Art thou thinking about that garden yet? she said. I know thou would. That was just the way with me when I first heard about it. Why did he hate it? Mary persisted. Martha tucked her feet under her and made herself quite comfortable. Listen to the wind wuthering around the house, she said. You could bear stand up on the moor if you was out on it tonight. Mary did not know what Wuthering meant until she listened, and then she understood. It must mean that hollow, shuddering sort of roar which 
rushed round and round the houses. If the giant no one could see were buffeting it and beating it at the walls and windows to try to break in. But one knew he could not get in, and somehow it made one feel very safe and warm inside a room with a coal fire. But why did he hate it so, she asked, after she had listened. She intended to know if Martha did. Then. Martha gave up her store of knowledge. Mind, she said, Mrs. Medlock said it's not to be talked about. There's lots of things in this place that's not to be talked over. That's Mr. Craven's orders. His troubles are non-servant's business, he says. But for the garden, he wouldn't be like he is. It was Mrs. Craven's garden that she had made when first they were married. She just loved it. And they used to tend the flowers themselves, and none of the gardeners was ever let to go in. Him and her used to go in and shut the door and stay there hours and hours, reading, talking. She was just a bit of a girl, and there was an old tree with a branch bent like a seat on it. And she made roses grow over it, and she used to sit there. But one day when she was sitting there, the branch broke and she fell on the ground and was hurt so bad. Next day she died. The doctors thought he'd go out of his mind and die too, that's why he hates it. No one's never gone in since and he won't let anyone talk about it. Mary did not ask any more questions. She looked at the red fire and listened to the wind wuthering. It seemed to be wuthering louder than ever. At that moment, a very good thing was happening to her. Four good things had happened to her, in fact, since she came to Misselthwaite Manor. She had felt as if she had understood a robin, and that he had understood her. She had run in the wind until her blood had grown warm. She had been healthily hungry for the first time in her life. And she had found out what it was to be sorry for someone. But as she was listening to the wind, she began to listen to something else. She did not know what it was, because at first... She could scarcely distinguish it from the wind itself. It was a curious sound. It seemed almost as if a child were crying somewhere. Sometimes the wind sounded rather like a child crying. But presently, Mistress Mary felt quite sure this sound was inside the house, not outside it. It was far away but it was inside. She turned round and looked at Martha. Do you hear anyone crying? she said. Martha suddenly looked confused. No, she answered. It's the wind. Sometimes it sounds like as if someone was lost on the moor and wailing. It's got all sorts of sounds. But listen, said Mary. It's in the house. 
down one of those long corridors. And at that very moment, a door must have been opened somewhere downstairs. For a great rushing draught blew along the passage, and the door of the room they sat in was blown open with a crash. And as they both jumped to their feet, the light was blown out, and the crying sound was swept down the far corridor, so that it was to be heard more plainly than ever. There, said Mary, I told you so. It's someone crying, and it isn't a grown-up person. Martha ran and shut the door and turned the key. But before she did it, they both heard the sound of a door in some far passage shutting with a bang. And then everything was quiet, for even the wind ceased weathering for a few moments. It were the wind, said Martha stubbornly. And if it weren't, it were little Betty Butterworth, the scullery maid. She's had the toothache all day. But something troubled and awkward in her manner made Mistress Mary stare very hard at her. She did not believe she was speaking the truth. The next day, the rain poured down in torrents again. And when Mary looked out of her window, the moor was almost hidden by grey mist and cloud. There could be no going out today. What do you do in your cottage when it rains like this? She asked Martha. Try to keep from under each other's feet, mostly, Martha answered. Hey, there does seem a lot of us then. Mother's a good-tempered woman, but she gets fair moithered. The biggest ones go out in cowshed and plays there. Dickon, he doesn't mind the wet. He goes out just the same as if it was sun was shining. He says these things in the rainy days as it doesn't show when it's fair weather. He once found a little fox cub, half drowned in its hole, and he brought it home in the bosom of his shirt to keep it warm. Its mother had been killed nearby and the hole was swum out and the rest of the litter were dead. He's got it at home now. He found a half-drowned young crow another time, and he brought it home too and tamed it. It's named Soot, because it's so black, and it hops and flies about with him everywhere. The time had come when Mary had forgotten to resent Martha's familiar talk. She had even begun to find it interesting, and to be sorry when she stopped or went away. The story she had been told by her ayah when she lived in India had been quite unlike those Martha had to tell about the moorland cottage which held fourteen people who lived in four little rooms and never had quite enough to eat. The children seemed to tumble about and amuse themselves like a litter of rough, good-natured collie puppies. Mary was most attracted by the mother and Dickon. When Martha told stories of what mother said or did, they always sounded comfortable. If I had a raven or a fox cub, I could play with it, said Mary. 
but I have nothing. Martha looks perplexed. Can the knit? she asked. No, answered Mary. Can the saw? No. Can the reed? Yes. Then why doesn't the reed something, or learn a bit of spelling? That's old enough to be learning thy book a good bit now. I haven't any books, said Mary. Those I had were left in India. That's a pity, said Martha. If Mrs. Medlock had let thee go into library, there's thousands of books there. Mary did not ask where the library was, because she was suddenly inspired by a new idea. She made up her mind to go and find it herself. She was not troubled about Mrs. Medlock. Mrs. Medlock seemed always to be in her comfortable housekeeper's sitting room downstairs. In this queer place, one scarcely ever saw anyone at all. In fact, there was no one to see but the servants. And when their master was away, they lived a luxurious life below stairs, where there was a huge kitchen hung about with shining brass and pewter, and a large servants' hall, where there were four or five abundant meals eaten every day, and where a great deal of lively romping went on when Mrs. Medlock was out the way. Mary's meals were served regularly, and Martha waited on her, but no one troubled themselves about her in the least. Mrs. Medlock came and looked at her every day or two, but no one inquired what she did or told her what to do. She supposed that perhaps this was the English way of treating children. In India, she had always been attended by her ayah, who had followed her about and waited on her hand and foot. She had often been tired of her company. Now she was followed by nobody and was learning to dress herself because Martha looked as though she thought she was silly and stupid when she wanted to have things handed to her and put on. "'Hasn't that got good sense?' she said once, when Mary had stood waiting for her to put on her gloves for her. "'Ah, Susan Ann's twice as sharp as thee, and she's only four year old. Sometimes that looks fair soft in the head.' Mary had worn her contrary scowl for an hour after that but it made her think several entirely new things. She stood at the window for about ten minutes this morning, after Martha had swept up the hearth for the last time and gone downstairs. She was thinking over the new idea which had come to her when she heard of the library. She did not care very much about the library itself, because she had read very few books. But to hear of it brought back to her mind the hundred rooms with closed doors. She wondered if they were all really locked, and what she would find if she could get into any of them. But there are a hundred, really. Why shouldn't she go and see how many doors she could count? It would be something to do on this morning when she could not go out. She had never been taught to ask permission to do things, and she knew nothing at all about authority, so she would not have thought it necessary to ask Mrs. Medlock if she might walk about the house. 
even if she had seen her. She opened the door of the room and went into the corridor. And then she began her wanderings. It was a long corridor, and it branched into other corridors. And it led her up short flights of steps, which mounted to others again. There were doors and doors, and there were pictures on the walls. Sometimes they were pictures of dark, curious landscapes, but oftenest they were portraits of men and women in queer, grand costumes made of satin and velvet. She found herself in one long gallery whose walls were covered with these portraits. She had never thought there could be so many in any house. She walked slowly down this place and stared at the faces, which also seemed to stare at her. She felt as if they were wondering what a little girl from India was doing in their house. Some were pictures of children, little girls in thick satin frocks which reached to their feet and stood out about them, and boys with puffed sleeves, lace collars and long hair, or with big ruffs around their necks. She always stopped to look at the children and wonder what their names were, where they had gone, why they wore such odd clothes. There was a stiff, plain little girl rather like herself. She wore a green brocade dress and held a green parrot on her finger. Her eyes had a sharp, curious look. Where do you live now? said Mary aloud to her. I wish you were here. Surely no other little girl ever spent such a queer morning. It seemed as if there was no one in all the huge rambling house but her own small self. Wandering about upstairs and down, through narrow passages and wide ones, where it seemed to her that no one but herself had ever walked. Since so many rooms had been built, people must have lived in them, but it all seemed so empty that she could not quite believe it true. It was not until she climbed to the second floor that she thought of turning the handle of a door. All the doors were shut, as Mrs. Medlock had said they were, but at last she put her hand on the handle of one of them and turned it. She was almost frightened for a moment when she felt that it turned without difficulty, and that when she pushed open the door itself it slowly and heavily opened. It was a massive door, and opened into a big bedroom. There were embroidered hangings on the wall and inlaid furniture, such as she had seen in India, stood about the room. A broad window with leaded panes looked out upon the moor, and over the mantel was another portrait of the stiff, plain little girl who seemed to stare at her more curiously than ever. Perhaps she slept here once, said Mary. She stares at me so that she makes me feel queer. 
After that, she opened more doors and more. She saw so many rooms that she became quite tired and began to think that there must be a hundred, though she had not counted them. In all of them, there were old pictures or old tapestries with strange scenes worked on them. There were curious pieces of furniture and curious ornaments in nearly all of them. In one room, which looked like a lady's sitting room, the hangings were all embroidered velvet, and in a cabinet were about a hundred little elephants made of ivory. They were of different sizes. Some had their mahouts or palanquins on their backs. Some were much bigger than the others, and some were so tiny that they seemed only babies. Mary had seen carved ivory in India, and she knew all about elephants. She opened the door of the cabinet and stood on a footstool and played with these for quite a long time. When she got tired, she set the elephants in order and shut the door of the cabinet. In all her wanderings through the long corridors and the empty rooms, she had seen nothing alive. But in this room, she saw something. Just after she had closed the cabinet door, she heard a tiny rustling sound. It made her jump and look around at the sofa by the fireplace from which it seemed to come. In the corner of the sofa there was a cushion, and in the velvet which covered it there was a hole and out of the hole peeped a tiny head, with a pair of frightened eyes in it. Mary crept softly across the room to look. The bright eyes belonged to a little grey mouse, and the mouse had eaten a hole into the cushion and made a comfortable nest there. Six baby mice were cuddled up asleep near her. If there was no one else alive in the hundred rooms, there were seven mice who did not look lonely at all. If they wouldn't be so frightened, I would take them back with me, said Mary. She had wandered about long enough to feel too tired to wander any farther, and she turned back. Two or three times she lost her way by turning down the wrong corridor she was obliged to ramble up and down until she found the right one. But at last she reached her own floor again, though she was some distance from her own room and did not know exactly where she was. I believe I have taken a wrong turning again, she said, standing still at what seemed the end of a short passage with tapestry on the wall. I don't know which way to go. How still everything is. It was while she was standing here, and just after she had said this, that the stillness was broken by a sound. It was another cry, but not quite like the one she had heard last night. It was only a short one. 
a fretful childish whine muffled by passing through walls. It's nearer than it was, said Mary, her heart beating rather faster. And it is crying. She put her hand accidentally upon the tapestry near her and then sprang back, feeling quite startled. The tapestry was the covering of a door, which fell open and showed her that there was another part of the corridor behind it. And Mrs. Medlock was coming up it with her bunch of keys in her hand and a very cross look on her face. What are you doing here? she said, and she took Mary by the arm and pulled her away. What did I tell you? I turned around the wrong corner, explained Mary. I didn't know which way to go, and I heard someone crying. She quite hated Mrs. Medlock at the moment, but she hated her more the next. You didn't hear anything of the sort, said the housekeeper. You come along back to your own nursery, or I'll box your ears. And she took her by the arm, and half pushed, half pulled her up one passage and down another until she pushed her in at the door of her own room. Now, she said, you stay where you're told to stay, or you'll find yourself locked up. The master had better get you a governess, same as he said he would. You're one that needs someone to look sharp after you. I've got enough to do. She went out of the room and slammed the door after her. And Mary went and sat on the hearthrug pale with rage. She did not cry, but ground her teeth. There was someone crying. There was. There was, she said to herself. She had heard it twice now, and sometime she would find out. She had found out a great deal this morning. She felt as if she had been on a long journey. And at any rate, she had had something to amuse her all the time. And she had played with the ivory elephants and had seen the grey mouse and its babies in their nest in the velvet cushion. And that is where we close the book tonight on The Secret Garden. Thank you for joining me.